Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I am rejoined by my partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, great to have you back. Well, it's good to be back. Um, You know, Eric, I usually look forward with great anticipation to our sessions together with the the fascinating uh, guests, the uh, insights into our difficult world. But I have to say, I I face today's subject with unusual trepidations. This is going to be hard. Well, today is going to be the positivity show. I mean, usually Shield of the Republic is a dark corner of the podcast universe, chewing over all the terrible things that are happening in the world. Some of our shows have had titles like The World is Going to Hell, and, and those have been the sunnier and more optimistic shows. So today we're going to focus on the things uh, that are positive that have happened in the world. Before we get there, though, I do um, I do want to clear up one thing. You know, occasionally, I don't know about you, Elliot, but I make mistakes. That's why I have erasers on my pencils. And alert listener Daniel Kurtzphalen, who is the editor of Foreign Affairs, has pointed out to me that um, when uh, you and I were talking not long ago about an article by Tom Graham that uh, had talked about Ukrainian corruption and had to get a response from five former ambassadors of Ukraine, I attributed it to foreign affairs. That was incorrect. Uh, Silly me, it was actually the Council on Foreign Relations website. And even though Foreign Affairs is the flagship publication of the Council of Foreign Relations. Dan has pointed out that he does not actually have control, editorial control, over the CFR uh, website. So apologies to to Dan. Um, I would point out, by the way, that Dan has written a quite excellent book on the Marshall Mission to China and the origins of U.S.-China policy. So maybe we can use this, you know, opportunity to suborn him to come on a future episode of of uh, Shield the Republic to talk about China. That would be fun. But uh, onward to positivity. So I will, you know, throw it to you. What is the, you know, first positive thing you can say about the world as it sits today? Well, so one thing I was going to just say right now is it's very nice to work with a gentleman. And uh, that was graciously done. Um, Dentistry. You know, if you think about it, um, I mean, you know, when people romanticize the 19th century, the 18th century, and Lord knows the Middle Ages, I don't think they think about dentistry. And, you know, dentistry has gotten a hell of a lot better even than it was when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, if you had a filling, you know, the drill was really slow. 
and you know made a terrible noise. Now you know they dull the pain, they move quickly. So I'm that's a good thing. I'll be a yeah, little. It, bit more. it was like the, the dentistry was like the opening scene in the movie Marathon Man with Sir Lawrence Olivier right. and Dustin Hoffman. Is it safe? Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. The well, drill just <laughs> digging in with no, you know, Novocaine. Actually, yeah. If you, if you ever see any of the old drills, the uh, they were driven with a foot pedal. <laughs> So let, we don't want to think about that. Let, so let's talk about happier things. So they're actually, um, I, I'm in all seriousness, I'm glad we're doing this because there is there is a lot of good news out there uh, in a variety of ways. One thing I'll, I'll just mention to start off with is I, if you had asked me two and a half years ago, three years ago, what the European reaction would be to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I would have given you a pretty dismal forecast. You know, some outrage, uh, protests, uh, sanctions, which would then kind of melt away and nothing much. And I think when we step back and look at it, uh, the impact on Europe has, the, the, rather the European reaction, with exceptions, but by and large is pretty formidable. And the Germans have in a slow and halting way, but nonetheless in a serious way, committed to uh, rearmament. They are putting some resources behind that. More importantly, they're They've been aiding the Ukrainians on a large scale. Uh, you have Finland and Sweden joining uh, NATO. Uh, you have a kind of staunchness on the part of the Poles and the Baltic states, the Czech Republic, which is impressive. Um, the Brits, in a way, have taken a leadership role again. Um, and even some of the political leaders that people would have had concerns about, like um, Prime Minister Maloney in Italy, they've really been quite good. And so I think that's there's uh, there's something to reflect there, which has to do with some of the underlying strengths of uh, of democracy. Um, by no means perfect, but it, but it is good news, and I think we should recognize it. You know, I agree. Even you know some problematic political figures in Europe. You mentioned uh, Prime Minister Maloney in in Italy, who has been a uh, I think a, a pleasant surprise to a lot of people who are worried about the rise of populist nationalism in Europe when she came to power, as, as you say, has been very staunch uh, as a defender of NATO and Ukraine. Uh, even um, Slovak Prime Minister Robert Fico, who made some very negative noises when he was first elected, went to Ukraine, made very positive, positive statements. It, the Germans, just to pick up on your point, there's a terrific Financial Times article today about the um, additional resources you were talking about and the kind of investments the Germans are making in defense, more leopard tanks, more Patriot batteries, um, uh, more, uh, more P-8 uh, aircraft, all sorts of, of things that contribute to the common defense. Uh, I don't want to go to the negative side. You know, there will, we'll have to see what happens when those extra budgetary resources that they've put into place expire in a couple of years. But off to a good start. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. I'm not going there. It's off to a good start. Off to a good start. And, you know, our own Congress, the Senate, uh, passed 70 to 29, the uh, $96 billion aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, uh, Taiwan, jumpstarting our own defense industrial base. So, you know, positive movement there as well. Yeah, I I think I think that those are all serious positives. Let me throw out another big positive, and then uh, maybe you could run with it. Um, I think until a, a couple of years ago, uh, there was an awful lot of concern about the 
uh, I don't like the phrase, but I'll use it anyway, the soft power of the Chinese example, you know, the author authoritarian state, the dictatorship really, uh, that was able to just year on year give 10% growth. And um, and I, I think it was having a real effect. And of course, you know, all that was pernicious because it it came with uh, authoritarianism and with surveillance technology and repression and, and all that. Uh, and while I don't, you know, wish ill on uh, anybody, well, on, on the vast majority of the people who live in China, uh, the, the fact that the Chinese economy is in difficult straits because of things which are actually quite attributable to the Chinese style of governance, um, that has take that has tarnished that model considerably. Whereas conversely, the American economy, with some exceptions, including the inflation rate, is actually doing pretty well. Um, and I think the, you know, it's really important that people not get the idea, which they did get in the '30s, that the, you know the liberal democracies with limited government, rule of law, all that can't deliver economic growth. And, you know, um, it's good that uh, the idea of a competing model, I think, has been um, has been dealt a, a pretty hard knock. All right. I agree with that. And, you know, even uh, Larry Kudlow, former economic advisor to President Trump and persistent presence on Fox Business Channel, uh, has said that, you know, the American economy is doing very well. The U.S. economy is leading the world in recovering essentially from the ravages of, of uh, COVID uh, on, on the international economy. So that is all to the good. I would say while we're on the subject of China, the other thing that is good is that the election result in Taiwan, I think, came out pretty well in the sense that President Lai was elected you got a, a slightly different result in the legislative elections, but that seems to have calmed PRC fears ab about uh, the imminence of, of Taiwanese independence. And you haven't had the very harsh kind of reaction uh, that you might have expected you know, to a lie uh, victory based on the rhetoric before the fact. And in fact, Jake Sullivan has had his meeting with with Wang Yi and, and, you know, U.S.-China relations seem to be a little bit more, um, you know, in a, a, a slightly better place. I, I wouldn't want to overplay that, but uh, given everything else that's going on in the world, it's probably not a bad thing to have a little bit of stability in that, in that relationship for the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I will say that I'm, um, there are always some things that people like to hyperventilate about. And uh, the election was one of them. You know, my strong impression, to include from having met him, was President Lai was he wasn't going to go saying really stupid things that were going to provoke the Chinese. I mean, they they know where they are physically. They know uh, what the Chinese military buildup is like. They know what some of the hesitations of the United States are like. So I I thought. Um, I was not entirely surprised by that. I'll just match it with a kind of a parallel thing. It seemed to me the replacement of General Zeluzhny, um by General Sirsky and bring in a new team in uh, in Ukraine. And you know there was a again a lot of hyperventilation about you know how, what a terrible thing it is replacing General Zeluzhny and so on. 
you know, the fuss died down within a week. Uh, and for good reason, because, you know, it was illusion is a formidable figure. Sersky is a very formidable figure in a somewhat different way with a different background and a new leadership team. And I, you know, there may be a lesson. Uh, I, I suppose I'll take a lesson for myself, even because I, I may not hyperventilate about those things, but I may hyperventilate about other things. And I, I think it was Colin Powell, or I'm sure it's many people who said, you know, Things are never as good as you think, and they're never as bad as you think. Now, that's most of the time. Sometimes they are as bad as you think. But we're going to stay with the positive. Yeah, well, I mean, the other positive development in Ukraine is the Ukrainians appear to have uh, taken out another Russian landing ship from the Black Sea Fleet. I I don't know that we've completely verified that, but that appears to be the case. And it's another example of one of the sort of unsung successes of the so-called failed counteroffensive, which has been the uh, on the naval front. Uh, we talked about this with Phil Breedlove, you know, the successful forcing of the Black Sea Fleet out of most of uh, Western and Southern uh, Crimea and, you know, up towards uh, Novorossiysk in, in Russia. Yeah, I, you know, actually, I think it's it's quite a big deal. So I was digging into this a bit. First, this is a pretty big ship. It's like, um, I think, 396 feet long. It's one of nine landing ships in the Black Sea Fleet, of which the Ukrainians have now sunk five. So they've sunk most of the landing ships. And the reason why they're important is not because the, the Russians, um, I think, after the initial phase, were really thinking hard about uh, amphibious landings is because they're using them to run ammunition to uh, uh, Russian forces in southern Ukraine. You know they're they're worried about the vulnerability of the Kerch Bridge. They are building a, a railroad that's closer in to the coast, but that is vulnerable to interruption if if and when we give them the right weapons, which is a uh, another matter. Uh, although there have been reports that the Ukrainians have received and even used. Uh, the ground launch small diameter bomb, uh, which again would be a weapon with extended range, um, that that would be a that would be a very good thing. So it's it is a remarkable success, and it's a tribute, among other things, to Ukrainian technological prowess. Uh, you know, there's so much emphasis on you know, what the Russians can build and what they have, and drones from Ukraine and what have you, uh, drones from uh, Iran rather. Uh, that I think people have tended to underestimate just how much the Ukrainians have been able to do. And it, ha- it has kept their grain exports flowing, not at pre-war levels, but in a very substantial way. So that, Very, very that close is, to pre- pre-war levels. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that is a, a good thing as well, I think. Well, and while we're on the, the subject, uh, our intrepid producer, Robert, whose substack I might add is uh, you know focused mostly on the negative <laughs> events around the world particularly the, the negative does not fall far from the oak that's all I can say <laughs> yeah but the, he he tends to focus on those things that you know the rest of the world is ignoring while we're all you know focused on Ukraine and 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 Gaza but he suggested to us uh you know that the Tucker Carlson interview was really a very positive thing in the sense that it flopped. It, it was a flop on television in Russia and it, it revealed something. I think I, I have to confess. I've not watched the entire two hours. I could not force myself to do it. I have heard from 
people like our colleague Ann Applebaum, who forced herself to watch the entire two hours of this uh, horrible event. But um, in the in the clips that I have watched, one of the things that's very striking to me, as someone who has met with President Putin a couple of times, been in the room with him, observed him, and and have been a kind of close observer of his behavior politically over a number of years, he could barely conceal his contempt for Tucker Carlson. I mean, it was, it was really the, the, the KGB case officer in, in Putin on display. He had clearly read the assessment file that the FSB has on Tucker Carlson and said, oh, you applied for the CIA, but you weren't taken because it's a serious organization for serious people, implying, of course, that Tucker Carlson is not a serious person. But, but moreover, I think he sees Carlson as a useful idiot and as, in essence, a traitor. And although Putin is perfectly willing to make use of such people, in his heart of hearts, he feels contempt for them as he feels contempt for Russian traitors who he tries to kill and people he considers to be traitors, I should say, as opposed to real traitors, but people like Alexei Navalny, the Skripals, people who he feels are have betrayed the motherland he wants to actually kill. And so it, he couldn't conceal it. It just came yeah. pouring out. But, but that's, you know, that in itself is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, if he were a really talented KGB case officer, and this was part of the greater uh, perception management disinformation campaign, you would have tried to build Tucker Carlson up. And the fact that he can't control his contempt or that he was willing to show it, you know, maybe it's just age, you know, as uh, you and I know all too well, the filters begin to... Yeah, your governor go goes away. away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. You and I probably aren't quite as kindly and forbearing with idiots as we once were, but you know that in itself is interesting. It, it was, it was, you know, I thought it was generally a kind of a missed opportunity for him, and it it did. Uh, it's interesting how how much the references to this word. This is Tucker Carlson being a useful idiot. That, and of course, the historical comparison you make is with somebody like Walter Durante famous New York Times correspondent in the 1930s who was basically peddling the Stalinist line. And uh, although there are people like that, I mean, Carlson was quite prominent. Uh, I think we, it, it, it's, it's no small matter that he's no longer at Fox News. I mean, he was really oh, yeah. a oh, yeah. um, extremely popular figure. I'm sure there are plenty of people watching him now, but but he... He was already a diminished figure, and I think he diminished himself more, and that's a good thing. Yeah, no, it's it's it is uh, an an excellent thing. Uh, another positive thing, it kind of again in the same vein, um, uh, the French published a report in the last couple of days exposing a large Russian disinformation network. Um, which uh, is a very interesting report. I think it's very positive that they have have done that. And I think it shows that, you know, European vigilance is going up 
and that democracy, to go back to one of your earlier points, uh, is is not just sort of you know feckless enterprise that is going to be easy pickings for authoritarians. Could could we actually let me leverage that a bit um, and uh, put you on the spot uh, and let's talk about the French because uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the fonder memories I have of our service together in government was the way you really took the lead and. Um, was quite a masterful way in rebuilding our ties with the French uh, after um, after the Iraq War, but and maybe you could just reflect a little bit about the French as allies because I think a lot of Americans and, and non-Americans as well sometimes misjudge this kind of this curious relationship we have with the French, which is always fraught and uh, not ambiguous, but am- profoundly ambivalent in some ways. Um, do you want to say a few words about that? Well, I think, you know, the French are always very prickly. Um, and, uh, you know, you and I both saw that. And in, in, uh, even as we were together, I think, trying to restitch a relationship that had been seriously frayed by the, um, by the Iraq war. I mean, you know, w- we were helped by the fact that um, there was a political change in France. There was an election in 2007. Sarkozy came came into power. Uh, Ségolène Royal, who was his opponent, a socialist opponent at the time, who and who has now totally beclowned herself by sort of being a. She's now been sort of marginalized in French politics as a kind of a apologist for Putin and clueless about what's going on in Ukraine. And so, but she actually said, you know. Um, he was an American neocon with a French passport, and that was totally unfair, I think. But there's no question that um, he brought a much more uh, pro-American uh, sort of sensibility to power. He brought France back into the integrated military command of, of NATO at the 2008 summit. And... Um, although the French still have not joined the nuclear planning group, and I don't believe ever will, uh, you know, they, their role in NATO has become much different uh, than it was before. When it used to be the outlier, the country around whom everybody in NATO had to work to get things done, they now are much, you know, better uh, contributor and uh, to the common defense. And, you know, frankly, in military sense, uh, have really superseded uh, the Brits. Um, I mean, I don't want to go negative here. I don't want to. This is no, the posi- no, no. this is the positivity. They are channel. even better than the Brits, is what you meant to say. Yeah, they've 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 really um, you know I have more military capability to bring to bear when when we need them. And I think if you talk to our colleagues in uniform, they would say the French have been really pretty good allies. They they really held up their own in Afghanistan when they went out there. And so uh, it's it's very different uh, than, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, Americans have always had these caricatures of the French. I think one thing that people have often underestimated is the strength of the military and also the intelligence ties, which have been there for a very, very long time. Um, I also say, you know, I would say that the French are in some respects quite serious about defense, Not not in all respects. I mean, they have a a defense industrial base uh, set of challenges as well. Um, as as does everybody says. in Europe. 
Yeah. They, they are serious about nuclear weapons. And I think yes. you know, that's something that could be uh, particularly important if, uh, well. Um, let's not go negative. Well, not, well, we won't go negative, but, you know, uh, it could be a great thing. We could have uh, all our European allies armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. That's okay. It's a little bit hard to make that one entirely positive. I, you know, the other thing is um, uh, I, I've always been fascinated by the history of Franco-American relations. There was a book that came out a number of years ago called L'Enemy American, the, the American Enemy. Um, I'm blocking on the name of the author, but it, it was French. Um, Philippe Roger. Yes, I think it's Philippe Roger. Yeah. Philippe Roger. And it's, it's hysterical because it, you know, it goes all the way back to the 18th century. Uh, there's one hysterical episode in it where Thomas Jefferson uh, is, you know, our representative in, uh, in Paris. And he, he hosts, uh, who's the French naturalist, uh, Buffon. And so there's this group of French scientists and they're a bunch of Americans. And uh, Monsieur Buffon is kind of laying down the law about how the North American climate in, is such that, uh, you know, just stunts everything there. So the animals are smaller and, and uh, Jefferson finally says, okay, let's test this. Why don't we all stand up? And of course, Jefferson was a very tall man, but you know, all the Americans were taller. The, Buffon re- refused to accept this. So I believe what Jefferson did is he had a, a stuffed moose shipped over to show them, we've got some pretty big animals roaming around the woods. But but the point, I think the more serious point is there has long been um, a streak in France that worries about the United States as kind of the model of a uh, where civilization is going in ways they don't like. Now, one of the ways that that manifests itself now is the French will write a lot about le wokeisme. wokeisme. Um, And now, the fact of the matter is I tend to sympathize with them more than I sympathize with a lot of the, a lot of people in the United States. But it, it is a, sort of an underlying aspect to the relationship. And of course, they're always, I think, somewhat irritated by what remains of the special relationship with, with Britain. Uh, they feel that that's... And then plus, you know, legacies of World War II and so on. But at, at the bottom, as you and I both know by personal experience, there's a lot of wonderful French diplomats, military people, intelligence officers, and and we're basically on the same side in some quite fundamental ways, even when there are differences. And maybe that can lead to an, another thing to be positive about is, so far at any rate, I mean, the basic alliance structure of the United States remains intact. Uh, not everywhere. I mean, they're, you know, not to be negative, but uh, I, I, I am happier about the Indo-Pacific than I am about Latin America. How's that as a way of being positive? Um, but, but, you know, th- that fundamental asset, I think, remains intact. And I think it's going to be hard for any competitor to really match it. Uh, I completely agree with that. I mean, one of the great things about the French, just to kind of tie that part of the conversation off a bit, um, you know, when I was George Schultz's special assistant, I remember on one trip to Paris that we had where he was meeting with his French counterpart. 
who I believe was Claude Chasson at that point. He came out of the meeting and we were, I think we were on the airplane and we were heading back and he said, you know, you can say what you want about the French. Um, you know, they're sometimes a pain to deal with. He said, but they have a, a, a global view of things. Yes. And in that sense, they're sometimes less uh, sort of insular, less um, blinkered than, you know, when I have my conversations with the Germans or, or even the Brits. And, and I, I think that's, I think that's true, you know, and we tend to forget that when we talk about the Indo-Pacific and trying to get our European colleagues involved in the Indo-Pacific and dealing with China, French have their own very strong tradition of Sinology. Um, yes. In fact, the late Andy Marshall, um, I think, would frequently point to some of the French Sinologists as providing some of the best analysis of China that he saw. Um, they, had, they had very good Russianists too. Think of Helen uh, uh, Donkaus. Yes, although she kind of towards the end of her life yeah, became a, became a hopeless apologist for for Putin. But she was a great historian of of Russia and the Soviet uh, Union and put her finger on a, a lot of its weaknesses that you know we exploited that helped you know blow the place up and end the Cold War. So you're you're certainly right about her in that that regard. But they're just, you know, um, you know, in Indo-Pacific, they are an Indo-Pacific power. They yeah. have uh, possessions still in the Pacific uh, and uh, folks there who elect representatives to the French parliament, uh, you know, France Outre-mer. And, and those people, you know, uh, are as sensitive to what the Chinese are doing in the Indo-Pacific as any of our other, you know, Indo-Pacific uh, allies. So... Uh, a, a lot there. I, I quite agree. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Indo-Pacific and our alliances there. Uh, one of the things I think the Biden administration has done uncommonly well uh, is work the alliances in the Indo-Pacific uh, and, you know, get, uh, you know, uh, us better aligned with our Australian uh, and Japanese and uh, Korean allies bringing the Indians in as part of the, the quad, which has been a very useful thing, of course, AUKUS. Um, and hopefully if the, the, um, if the um, aid bill passes the house, there'll be money there to, to boost the submarine industrial base to make good on the AUKUS undertakings on submarines. But people tend to neglect pillar two of AUKUS and all the activity that's going on there uh, in in the defense realm, which is also very you know, a lot of goodness in in that as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't know if I ever I did a an after action review in my um, Australia trip. Um, so I I will put it this way: there are things that I could be even happier about with regard to Australia if they were doing some different things uh, than they're doing now. But but I think your larger point is there. I also think it's important not to. Um, you know, not to disregard, you know, South Korean and, and Japanese agency in particular, um, because, you know, it is very strong. The Japanese are rearming in a serious way. I think more importantly, they are redeploying their forces. You know, they used to have most of their forces oriented towards the north in uh, Hokkaido, uh, oriented towards uh, Sakhalin. They are looking more to the south. They are 
beginning to invest in the kinds of weapon systems that you would need, not just to, you know, defend in a passive way, but to actually throw punches if necessary. Uh, they, you know, we one area where I think we have been helping is to ease the Korean-Japanese relationship, uh, which was historically always fraught. You know, in the old days, you talked to the South Koreans about what do they need a navy for? It wasn't the Chinese, it was for the, uh, for the Japanese. Um, the South Koreans, I think that's a very interesting story. I mean, they've really cautiously, uh, but they've nonetheless stepped up because they are a terrific arms manufacturer and they're willing to do the kinds of things that are really important for us in Ukraine where, you know, they sell us one five, five millimeter rounds so we can then give ours to the Ukrainians, this kind of ring game that the Germans, uh, I think invented, uh, you know, they are, they are making a major contribution to the rearmament of parts of Europe, particularly Poland. I think we've mentioned in an earlier podcast, the uh, total of a thousand, um, uh, K2 tanks, uh, which are good tanks. And, you know, that's, that's all very, that's very significant. And I, I suspect that those will not be the last Korean tanks and self-propelled artillery pieces and all the rest that are going to find their way to Europe. And that, that's good. And it's, you know, it represents in some ways uh, the beginning of a knitting together of our European and Asian alliance systems, which we hadn't really done. And well, there was some of that in the early cold war, you know, that uh, the Brits of course would show up to fight in Korea, for example, but, you know, but, Basically, they've been two parallel alliance systems rather than one united one. And even with the Indians, who are, you know, I think a more prickly bunch and who will never consider themselves allies, still, you know, if you look at the kind of the day-to-day mechanics of the relationship, the Indians are developing substantial naval power. They're investing in it. Uh, they exercise with us. They want to do things with us. They want to buy some American military hardware. So with with all the the challenges that India uh, presents as a partner, there's progress there too, I would say. I agree. And, you know, all too often, you know, when you and I were in government, for instance, and for, I would say, most of the decade following, our relations with the Republic of Korea and Japan were always sort of slightly out of phase when we had a very good yes. government in Japan that wanted to, you know, step up and increase spending on defense and do all the right things. Uh, we tended to have one that was not so, you know, positively oriented in Korea and vice versa. And so it, getting everybody sort of lined up is, is it's really a change and it's, 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 you know, very significant. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, what about that part of the world which uh, seems not to produce a whole lot of good news, um, the Middle East? And uh, so I'll put on the table, I think, one good thing and, you know, in a picture that is in some other respects quite dark, which is it is very striking to me that it's not just that the Arab states have not broken um, with the Israelis as a result of domestic pressure over the Gaza war. Uh, but they actually seem to be willing to play a constructive role in it. Now, it will remain to be seen whether, for example, you can have the UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, Jordan really be, you know, contribute to 
the creation of a, a Gaza Strip that is not run by Hamas, and it's not even clear that that's doable. But it's still, it's pretty remarkable, and it bears, I think it bears reflection and thinking about. Well, I agree. I think the most significant thing in that uh, realm that you just mentioned is the fact that um, the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, clearly still wants to move ahead with normalization between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Israel. And he wants that in part because he wants the security tie with the United States um, and a, you know, a, uh, an actual treaty of alliance. This goes to the issue of knitting our alliances and, and strengthening our alliances, which have been one of our competitive strategic advantages vis-a-vis -vis our adversaries uh, since 1948. Um, and, and that is extremely, you know, striking to me. Now, there can be a lot of challenges making that happen. Uh, we're in, we're in an election year and that's, uh, you know, every day you go further into the election cycle, the harder everything becomes. I have very distinct memories of commiserating with you, uh, every night <laughs> on, on the Tanberg when we were in office back in 2008, you know, I, I think that the normal refrain was, please just shoot me now, because every, <laughs> everything became so, so hard, uh, you know, in the election year. Um, and I'm sure they're going through that now. But but still, the fact that that MBS is hot to trot is a is a is a good thing. Yeah. So um, that's probably about as much good news as we get out of the Middle East. So maybe we should. But But while we're on the subject of the election year. Tom Swazi won New York three yesterday. Well, I was going to say let's let's talk about the United States now. It, it probably would be pushing it to say, isn't it a great thing that we're going to likely to have two presidential candidates who have a hundred a century and a half of life experience between the two of them, more than that. But but I think that might be a strained credulity a little bit. Yeah, I um, agree. So I let, don't want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the. So what's some of the good news I'll, I'll throw out? I think one piece of good news is, um, you know, to the extent that the Republicans have been crazy, um, they have tended to get punished for it uh, in the past election cycles. Now, we'll see whether or not that happens here. I, I, having said that, I, I'm not actually one who believes that the party is going to revert to what it was. I, I don't think that's likely. I, I have to say I do, you know, this is a perennial aspiration and, you know, the experts always say you're dead wrong to even think about it. But but I have to say I, I do wonder whether there's potential sometime in the next decade or so for a new party emerging because there's just so much dissatisfaction with the two parties we've got. And, you know, you look at the trend lines, that's it's really quite striking. And there's, it seems to me there's an opening for another party. But the main thing that, that would give me some positive feelings about American politics is uh, all the stuff that we don't read in the national papers. And that's, you know, basically the story of state and local governance. We're actually, you know, you have both Republican and Democrat mayors and governors running states that are doing kind of okay. I mean, they're, they're outbursts of lunacy, um, you know, like the attorney general of, uh, uh, the would-be independent, independent Republic of Texas. Um, but, but by and large, you know, the day-to-day -day story is the story of 
people solving problems, I think particularly at the municipal level. And, um, you know, that's that's going to be the next generation of leaders. And I I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think, you know, starting in 2028, you're going to you're going to be looking at a different generation than the ones we've been wrestling with the last two rounds. Yeah. God, I hope so. Um, speaking as a septuagenarian uh, who thinks, yeah. you know, those of us who are of a certain age ought to just get the hell off the stage and let younger people, you know, take responsibility for all these things. Look, I think Swazi's victory, you know, there's a couple of things. It's one of the things, you know, that, that reflects some of the things you were saying. I think it also shows that, you know, moderate cent- center, you know, center left centrist Democrats can win elections, even in circumstances that might not be ideal. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, his district is North Shore of Long Island and, and parts of Queens. But everything you see suggests that immigration was the top issue and the flood of immigrants into New York City, you know, most of them shipped up there by either Governor Abbott or uh, Governor DeSantis, um, but have been straining social services, you know, in the city. There has been some crime that's resulted from that. uh, And in some instances, some very high profile, uh, highly publicized instances of crime crime by um, uh, some of the illegal immigrants who, who've been, you know, shipped up there. And, and yet Swazi was able to neutralize that issue. Now, you know, the snow helped. You know, I don't want to overinterpret all this. Snow definitely helped, kept Republican turnout down. But, you know, on the whole, it is, a, I, I think, a template that a lot of other Democrats ought to look to, you know, as they uh, you know, gear up for, for the fall. And it's not just Swazi in New York is also, there were some, um, state, uh, legislative elections in Pennsylvania and a couple of other States where the Democrats have been able to, you know, replicate pretty much the same thing. So, um, I, I, that's, I think all to the good. Yeah. You know, you, I guess I wonder, um, with the Democrats too, whether, you know, there is this kind of they have their left wing, which uh, you and I don't care for. I, I, but I wonder whether that wing and what it represents is also losing some steam. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you see it in, for example, the pushback, which on the whole I think is pretty constructive, against some of the DEI bureaucracies uh, that have been created, and you know, companies sort of backing off. Uh, some of that and people stepping back and thinking about, you know, is this really the way we want to go? I, I also think, um, you know, along those lines, one of the the things that I find very heartening is, you know, you, there are always the countervailing forces begin to arise and countervailing institutions begin to arise. So, um, you know, one of the the organizations I'm very fond of is FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights of Expression, uh, which used to be focused on education. But now they do, they effectively do what the old uh, American Civil Liberties Union used to do, which is they actually genuinely just defend free speech. And, you know, they've been, they've been on a tear. They've been winning uh, court cases against universities who have been some of the worst offenders. And I, I think there is sort of a general sense that 
um, a lot of this stuff went too far and there's a need to kind of pull things back to some sort of sober middle or is that too positive even for you? No, I think, I, I, I do think that there's, you know, a general recoiling. I look, I think Americans recognize that diversity is actually one of our strengths, but I think, you know, most Americans also don't want to have it, in, you know, imposed on everybody as, as you know, some kind of uh, self-licking ice cream cone bureaucracy that, that, you know, just exists to perpetuate itself by finding, you know, constantly instances of unfairness and inequality. God knows there's enough unfairness in the world that we don't have to create bureaucracies to go and, and you know, kind of invent it, which is what I think we were doing. And, and there may even be a little bit of movement on the notion that uh, diversity includes viewpoint diversity. Yes. That, that, that's maybe a, that maybe that's a desirable thing. You know, I, um, you know, you began the show by talking about our complaints about, uh, you know, venerable institutions that produce magazines and such like. Uh, well, when I look at the New York Times now, it, I think it's better than it was, say, five, ten years ago. I mean, I think there's a bit more diversity of opinion, or at least they're aware that that's, that's an issue. Uh, that's an issue for them. I mean, I could be much happier about the Washington Post, but I would end up going negative, and I don't want to do that. Although I, I will tell you that I have discovered this is a tremendous source of joy, that you know it's very easy to subscribe online to the Daily Telegraph. And you know, I when I read my news first thing in the morning, that's that's the one that I end up with because I find myself with a smile on my face you know, mentally giving the journalists their fist bumps. Um, now, that may change if they get sold to the, the UAE, but but at the moment, they're pretty good. I, I, I won't disagree with that. Um, I think, um, are there other areas of the world where we can find, you know, something positive to to say? I You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of those areas where, Robert has, you know, focused our attention in his Substack. I mean, I, I suppose um, the indictment of President Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, for trying to overthrow the government when he lost his election, following in the footsteps of Trump. I mean, I I think that's a good thing. Yeah, um, I, well, the president of Argentina. I mean, he may be a little bit unusual, but I think if there's anybody who can pull that country forward and kind of break the Peronist model, that's, he's probably the guy. He's, I mean, he's not, he is most definitely not stupid. He is, let us say, colorful. Um, but he may turn out to be another political leader who is underestimated, I think, uh, because you know he, he does seem somewhat buffoonish. I will concede that. Um, but he's actually quite smart and he knows what he wants to do. And he does want to break an economic model that's taken a country that should by every right be quite well off and really impoverished it over the years. Yes. And, and uh, Robert just pointed out to me in the, in the chat that in Ecuador, uh, President Oboa has actually done a lot to, you know, repress gangs and drug trafficking, 
without the kind of mass violation of civil rights and, and civil liberties that we've seen for say in, in El Salvador, where you've got a kind of populist, you know, kind of nationalist doing it, um, and without the damage to democracy that uh, is visible there. You know, I do think that, I mean, there's a larger point here, and um, and that does have to do with, with the essential resilience of liberal democracy, uh, which is, particularly in recent years, I think people have tended to underestimate. Um, and while I don't think you should be Pollyannish about it, uh, the fact is there are there are success stories out there which are quite which are quite impressive. I mean, Ukraine is this incredible success story in a, in a way of a country that, you know, is that's fighting for its life, but it's also fighting for a way of a way of government for a, a, a civic conception of citizenship, um, and that's a you know that's a very good thing. Yeah, I think, and you kind of mentioned this a, a bit earlier, Elliot, which is that you know, in our darker moments on this show, when we have talked about the analogies between our current geopolitical circumstance and some of what Europe faced in the 30s, late, well, 20s and 30s in the interwar period, and you've always um, referred to Zara Steiner's book, uh, or two books, or two massive two-volume diplomatic history of that period. And I, one of the volumes, correct me if I'm wrong, is the, when the lights went out in Europe or something like that. Uh, there's the, um, the first one is the light that failed and the second is the triumph of the dark. Oh, okay. So there you go. So one of the, um, one of the, uh, you know, light motifs in that period was, as you were saying earlier, you know, liberal democracy is failing you know, autocracy is the wave of the future. It's capable of getting things done. And that's very much a narrative that both kind of Putin and Xi have tried to sell. Uh, Putin very explicitly did it, you know, in an op-ed he wrote in the New York Times a couple of years ago about our failing model. And, you know, who are we to impose our model when it was so crappy and doing so much damage? And that's a lot of what you see in propaganda uh, coming out of both uh, Russia and China. And so uh, keeping in mind the success stories of liberal democracy and its ability, its resilience and its ability to come back uh, from even, you know, some pretty dire circumstances is very important to keep in front of people. Well, I think, you know, we've managed by my counting 50 minutes of positivity. It was hard, but it was worth it. That's amazing. I hadn't realized we'd hit the 50-minute mark yet of positivity. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not sure I want to try to do this again. Um, yeah, and I think we should wrap up before my mind, you know, just naturally goes to the dark side. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's been a struggle all the way through. But it, in all seriousness, it, it is a good thing to do periodically, even for, you know, kind of crusty old codgers like us. Well, I hope our listeners will, uh, you know, rejoin us next week when we will return to our normal dark and gloomy <laughs> selves. Um, and uh, I look forward. To, we've got a couple of really terrific guests coming up. Um, yeah, we and, really do. And, and I'm uh, looking forward to joining you with them and uh, 
continuing to hopefully find some positive things as well as the many negatives that we see uh, from time to time in this show. (laughs) Absolutely. See you in a bit.